Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Cron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Cron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Matt Faircloth, who has a very popular book called Raising Private Capital, Building Your Real Estate Empire Using Other People's Money. So I'm really excited to let him share his expertise today. He's He's got a lot of experience in this space. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marcus. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Actually, I should note, uh, when I kind of got into this space, uh, you know, being in the, the multifamily, raising capital, dealing with private investors, your book was actually one of the first ones that I kind of looked to. So it's it's kind of cool having you on the show here. And I know I learned a lot from your book. And oh. uh, yeah, I don't know how many, I probably went through it a couple times, but yeah, a lot of great insight. Thank you. So, yeah, yeah. So, it's an honor to hear that. Thank you. I'm, <laughs> glad, I'm glad to hear it made a I, I hope it made a difference. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of insight. I mean, not many, I think it was more or less one of the first of its kind. I, I think there's mm-hmm. another book on the raising capital in this space. I know Hunter Thompson has a great one, and but uh, it's really good insights into into how to kind of deal in this space. Yes. So he is a very he is a very similar book. Yeah, uh, totally. To me, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a little intro here before we kick it off. So Matt is the president of the real estate investment firm, the DeRosa Group. Under Matt's leadership, DeRosa has completed over 30 million in real estate transactions involving private capital, including fix and flips single-family home rentals, mixed-use buildings, apartment buildings, office buildings, and tax lien investments. Matt has an extensive expertise in connecting passive investors to lucrative investment opportunities through syndications, private loans, and joint ventures. And as I already mentioned, he is the author of the very popular book, Raising Private Capital. So Matt, uh, let's let's jump right into it here. How did you get involved in this space? How did you originally get into real estate investing? Oh man, um, good question. I uh, met my wife when I was um, I was uh, young and single, living in Philadelphia. Met my, you know, became my girlfriend, and she got me to read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and that opened up my eyes to things. I had some success underneath my belt from a prior from a career that I was in as a sales rep, and I had a few dollars, and so I used those dollars to buy a single family home that I lived in. Um, and I rented out two of the bedrooms to two buddies of mine. And that was my first rental property. Um, and then that was just after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and playing a ton of his, of Kiyosaki's, uh, cash flow board game. Um, I spent a lot of my time doing that. And that, that's really what opened up my eyes to the power of real estate investing to the point my wife and I, um, when we decided, when we were, okay, let's get married, we decided to get married. And we also then decided, Hey, let's live below our means and buy, um, buy a house that's a little less than we can afford and we'll live off of her her paycheck um and that so that that's that's what we did and it was a great move for us and and i'm glad we did it yeah and that's really cool how you jumped into there like i mean your wife like you said well girlfriend at the time introduced you to rich dad poor dad and that's a really cool you know having that support of your your significant other along the way and i think it uh 
for me, it was actually the opposite way where obviously I, you know, I came into the space. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of people do learning about buying assets and and avoiding liabilities and, and really introduces people to the multifamily real estate and, and just mm-hmm. investing in general. And I remember giving it to my wife. I'm like, hey, you should probably read this book, um, you know, just kind of getting exposed to these types of things, especially when you talk about like living below your means and uh, buying things that are actually going to set you up for later in life. So. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that as well. Like you have your, um, is your wife still currently working with you in the business? How's that kind of worked? Um, kind of. Okay. She did. Um, and, and for a while, but then now we have two young kids. Um, she's kind of like, you know, my muse, my board member, the person I go to for inspiration and ideas and everything like that. Um, and she is, uh, she is someone that I, uh, you know, like just trusted advisor, but she's got her own initiatives going on. She has a successful brand called the Real Estate Invest Her Show. Um, that's a podcast and a movement and a um and, and a and a Facebook community. And they're they're now a publishing company that just published a book and everything like that. So uh they, they have they have their own thing. And so she's got what's great is we my wife and I have spots where we converge and spots where we diverge. And our convergence is around like advice and masterminding and ideas for each other's companies. And our divergence is around like we, we work together, but not like work on top of each other where like I'm her boss or she's my boss or whatever. We just kind of like co collaborate on things or do special projects for each other. Um, but for the most part, we both got our own thing going on and we both, you know, have two young kids that we're both uh, <laughs> spending time, uh, you know, working with and everything like that too. Yeah. And it's, it's, even though they're not directly relate or working together on specific initiatives at all times, it sounds like you've created a lot of great synergies with, with your wife and has resulted in, you know, allowed you to you know grow and, and do great things in your business. And, and, and that's such a big thing is having, when you're committing to something like this in multifamily and in investing, like it, it, you really have to have a team effort and have your significant other kind of on board with what you're looking to accomplish. Because if you're going out I don't and trying to people that don't, I don't get how people don't, man. I've 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 talked to others that are trying to build an investing business with their spouse not engaged and enrolled in the day to day of the investing business, and I'm just like, I I I don't see anyone, you know, make the make it to the to to break through the glass ceiling um, at that level. I see people with a few rentals, but you got to have your spouse 100 percent bought in if you want to really grow and expand in this business. Um, it doesn't, they don't have to be working alongside you, uh, or anything like that, but they got to get it and they got to be okay that sometimes real estate investing is going to suck time or money out of your personal life. Um, one of those two things and probably both. And if your spouse is not okay with you being out on it again, pre COVID, if your spouse is not okay with you being out on a Tuesday night to go to a networking event or cutting a check every here and again for startup cost or marketing or to buy a property or whatever, you know, I don't think that you're going to get very far because they have to be okay with you investing that time and the money to, to build the business. I've never seen anybody be successful without their spouse buy-in. Yeah, that's so important. Just even, like you said, doesn't have to be active involvement, yeah. but having buy-in, right? Like I, that's kind of the reasoning why I'd introduce my wife to these concepts on on building wealth and, and buying assets, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is like really an introductory um, book yeah. into this space. And I remember like when 
you know, even for, for me, I'm just interested in the topic and going to these real estate meetup groups and, and also like from an educational standpoint, but networking and, and building great connections. And then it, it, it is awkward. Well, especially, you know, back pre COVID when a lot of them were happening in person, but, you know, trying to go out on a, and a Tuesday evening and go to a meetup group is becomes challenging when, when your significant other isn't going to support you and be like, Hey, like that's valuable for you to go to. Or I actually remember asking her to come to an event with me and she's just like, okay, I'll come with you. She kind of felt out of place at first, but it's like, you know, just getting that buy-in and, and being supportive of each other is super important. Yeah. And even, you know what, Marcus, they could be your best cheerleader in the world. And that's all. That's what it is. And I mean, for me, just hearing like, Hey, honey, I believe in you and you got to, and I know you got problems in the business, but you'll figure, I, I believe that you're going to figure it out. You know, maybe that's all you need is those words of encouragement, you know, um, for, from your spouse. Now I have more than that because my spouse is somewhat active, you know, or at least is an advisor that's aware of more of what we do. And she used to be very active in the business, but Liz used to keep our books and do showings and do all kinds of other stuff. And, you know, uh, and she decided she wanted her own venture and also, you know, kids will do that, you know? Um, but your spouse doesn't have to be active. They just need to be supportive and either the best cheerleader you got, or at least accepting to say, okay, dear, you know, do whatever, do what you got to do, you know, to, to advance things forward. So, totally. And the way you create that is by painting the picture of the future of, Hey, if we start buying these real estate properties, if we start doing some apartment building deals or whatever, to those of your listeners that are out there like, Hey, well, how do I get my spouse to get it? Paint the picture of what life will look like if you hit your real estate goals. It's not about, I want to have a hundred units. We'll get it. You know, and, and I respect that you want to have 100 units. That's awesome. But why don't you tell your spouse what 100 units is going to do for you, you know, and what life you can live with 100 units? What's life going to look like for the kids? And what legacy can you leave? And what charity work can you do? And how many hours is it going to free you up on? You know, they don't care about 100 units. They don't. If they're not, if they're not, if they didn't drink the real estate Kool-Aid like you and I did, 100 units means nothing. That just sounds like a bunch of work is what 100 units sounds like, you know? Totally. Yeah, I agree with that yeah. for sure. And, and, you know, even looking at our next purchase, if we're going to go buy, buy something to kind of be a little bit bigger for our growing family and looking at stuff that's going to be kind of that, well, you hear it all the time. And I know you're kind of involved with bigger pockets and stuff like that, like the house hacking and, and trying to find ways to make your primary residence a little bit of an investment property as well by being either a mortgage helper or actually helping a cash flow. So just as we look for that, you know, introducing those concepts to house hacks and other wife, level, kind of being like, you know, house hacks and other level, but yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. Introducing those concepts <laughs> to your wife. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, it's almost a necessity. And I mean, like for the area that I live in where real estate is super expensive, it almost becomes a necessity to buy into a place with a rental income because mm -hmm. it's so expensive to, to go and bear this big mortgage on your own. But anyways, we, we've, we've, uh, you know, dug into this topic quite a bit, but it was, it was a good one. Cause it, it, it was one that I haven't really talked about on the show. And, and it's, it's a big aspect that some people might overlook when talking about this business yeah. is having like a team effort in your, in your family unit. So let's talk about your evolution, how you kind of came. I know you kind of went, uh, in the fix and flip space and single family, you're, you're into multifamily now. Like a lot of people talk about kind of going, especially nowadays is like, okay, skip that, go right into multifamily, go big or go home. Talk about that middle ground. Talk about how you, you know, scaled over time and how you didn't just bite off this huge, but you know, uh, 
chunk that you you might not have been able to manage right off the mm-hmm. bat. Talk about scaling up and how you did it. Um, yeah, can you touch sure, on that? Sure, 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 sure. Um, we did it kind of inch by inch, one foot in front of the other. Just and it taught us a lot. We learned a lot about small about smaller property landlording and about you know growth and expansion over time and everything like that. Um, that's what we were able to do because we didn't just take some run to the back of the room course do somebody else's weekend about how to buy apartment buildings and all of a sudden I'm an apartment building expert and and I'm going to go and you know buy a 100 unit building that was not our first deal um we grew slow and steady like we bought singles and doubles and then triples and then quadruples and uh scaled up and scaled up from there and um that's one way to do it and I do, I recommend that way I, I think there's two ways you can scale which is how what I did uh, and I would tell people, if you want to do that, just have maybe a goal of doubling your portfolio every time you do a deal. So you start at one, then you do two, then you do four, then you do eight, then you do 16, then you do three, you know, so scale up that way. Or you can find a talent that you bring to the table and um, and uh, bring that to someone else's team and join an existing team that has a reasonable amount of units and everything like that. And then you can add, you can add value out of the gate, right? Those are the two ways that I know that you can scale. We did it the first way. I know other people that kind of joined teams and then splintered off eventually and everything like that on their own. And there's no right way to do it. It's just, you know, which way speaks to you? Yeah. And kind of having that long-term mindset of some people might get drink the Kool-Aid and then it's like, okay, I got to go bigger, go home. It's got, you got to do it right here, right now. But I mean, real estate really is that long-term investment. Too and people want to get really, too big too fast. Yeah. yeah. And to. if you treat yeah. it, if you, if you treat it with that mindset of like, okay, I'm going to be investing for the next years and years and years of my life, you you can, you know, take off manageable bite-sized chunks and how you kind of grow yeah. and, 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 and start investing. So Let's talk about that evolution in terms of when you kind of realize you hit that point, when you started raising private capital, when you started bringing in investors where you couldn't scale fast enough through your own capital, and then you kind of start tapping into your network to to either do joint ventures. Can you talk about that evolution? Sure. They just came to, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I wish I could say like, oh, you know what, Marcus, we hit this thresh this this point and we're like, okay, this is when we're going to raise money. We're going to raise money in, in a year and this is how we're going to do it. We kind of stumbled into raising money, but then when we figured out that it was really a great win-win and enabled us to scale and take down deals that we couldn't do on our own, that's when we're like, okay, we're going to build this out. Now we have a pretty good machine for for capital. But uh, my first capital deal was, um, aside from immediate family, like my parents um, and my wife's parents uh, were able to work out a few things. Like they they owned their they owned their homes free and clear, right? Third, by the way, one third of America owns the home they live in free and clear. Do you know that? Um, I know that. So uh, they put a home equity line on their house, and they and they and we used some of that money for our first couple of deals when we first got going. A lot of people should consider that. Um, but once that had gone, and once we were already rolling and doing some stuff on our own with our own capital and everything like that, we were moving along. And then somebody, then Liz was doing, was getting reconnected, reacclimated with one of her friends from grad school. Um, and, uh, and that, so she was telling this friend from grad school, what her, what Liz and I were up to. And this friend from grad school was like, you know, a stockbroker on wall street working 80 hours a week. Um, and she was like, yeah, you know, my husband and I are buying real estate, doing some real estate deals. And he says, this guy says the magic words. He says, 
man, I sure wish I could invest in real estate too, but I just don't have the time. Ha! Yeah, you know, that's the like, golden words that you want yeah, to hear. Yeah, <laughs> man, that's the golden rule. Yeah, but guess what? Well, I have, I have time. You don't have time. I have time. Let's talk about that. But you know, and so it turned into uh, a beautiful partnership with me and this. I went up and met him in New York, and and we we sat down. We had coffee. We talked about deals. Talked about real estate. Uh, you know, he had some money he was trying to put to work, and so we got together and bought these two little single families in Trenton. Um, fixed them up, leased them out. Um refinance them, gave him all his money back. And then we took that, we took that seed capital and rolled it over and did a bunch of deals with it. Um, and that, and that was just mind blowing. And so he went and got a few of his other friends, they got in with me. And then, um, then that that's when I was like, this is amazing. And so we were able to build our portfolio pretty quickly by just working out fair, fair equity slices between me and the partners. Um, and me and those equity guys, those equity investors, with the splits that made sense. And then we started researching more complex structures like straight syndications and, you know, SEC filed stuff and everything like that. Because um, those initial deals, they they didn't get need to get filed with the SEC because my partners were active, um, like they were they were doing something. Once once you don't plan on having your partners do anything at all in the company, then it's a hundred percent. Hundred uh, percent. It's an, then it's a syndication. If they're hundred percent passive, it's a true syndication. So that's when we got into that. We learned how to do it, hired the right lawyers, and all, and we were off to the races from there. And we went. We we scaled small. We went. We syndicated a ten unit. Then we did an eighteen unit. Then we did a forty nine unit. Then we did a hundred ninety eight unit. And then we and that was you know off and running from there. Yeah, and you kind of talk about that ripple effect of you kind of stumbled into the space of finding somebody that's interested in an opportunity. You provided them a great opportunity. They want to get involved in real estate. You are the solution to what they were looking for because they don't have the time and they didn't have the expertise and they get to leverage you as that person. That's kind of their entrance into the ability yeah. to invest into real estate. So can you actually talk about that concept in a little bit more detail? Like some people think this space is in, in capital raising, raising private capital that you're just trying to convince somebody to invest in a deal or convince them to, to cough up this amount of money to come in and join a deal. But it really is the opposite way where you're actually presenting an opportunity to them. You're prizing, you, you have the prize. I, I've heard that phrase before in, in uh, you know, pitching deals and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Could you talk about that concept about, yeah, presenting yeah. an opportunity? Sure. I, I, and I will, because I, I think that what you said before is, you know, it's interesting because people are like, well, how do I convince people in my network to give me money? And it's like, you got the whole wrong context right there, buddy. Like that, that you stop calling it convincing, you know, um, because you've got to turn it around and realize that as much as they've got the checkbook, you've got the opportunity. And Raising Private Capital talks about um, deal providers and cash providers. And a deal provider brings just as much value as the cash provider does. They do. Um, and and until, you, until you realize that you and the investor are equal, are equal in what you bring to the deal, you're, it's going to be hard for you to powerfully enroll a lot of investors into your opportunities. Because the bottom line is cash providers that want to get in, that want to get into real estate investing, um, 
they're, you know, they, their options are limited. Yes, there's CrowdStreet and yes, there's this, yes, there's that, but they can't pick up the phone and call the people that are active on their deal. They, there's a reason why a lot of those portals do okay, but they don't blow out because people still want to be able to reach out and touch the person that's, that's running the opportunity or some people do, you know? Um, now, I, I, I think that, that those folks that are, you know, looking to invest as cash providers, Wall Street's what they got. And, and a few other alternatives. And so you're offering them an opportunity that has tax benefits, that has many other benefits or whatever, to reach their financial goals that they wouldn't have without you, you know? Um, and, and so I think you got to approach it with that mentality that they need you to get by. They yes. need you to reach their financial goals. They need you to hit their wealth. They need your help to hit their wealth. Without you, they are subject to the roulette wheel of Wall Street, you know? Um, and, and something that's, that's miles and miles and miles outside of their control. And how do you go about communicating that in a way? Because I mean, you, you can explain that and it sounds like, okay, yeah, I've got the opportunity, but how do you go out and actually position it that way? Not coming across needy or anything like that. How do you go and position yourself if you're going to be talking with private investors about an opportunity? Well, I, I think that it, it's, it's really about with a level of excitement, with the level of true authentic, like, hey, listen, you can make a really a lot of, uh, you can make a, you can achieve your wealth goals by working with me. And I can probably show you how what I do as real estate investor will produce better tax benefits and leverage versus what you can get on Wall Street, right? Um, wouldn't you love to hear more about that? Wouldn't you love to drive past your investment on your way to work next Monday? You know, um, especially if you're investing local and the investors local. So these are different. These are ways that you can that you can broker those conversations. And I, and and it, to not to not appear needy is that that's just a level of confidence that you got to have. And honestly, you know, Marcus, that comes after you've done a few deals um, because then you realize, hey, this works. These people really do need me, and this that was actually pretty easy getting somebody to write a check. Um, in that, so the first the first equity raise is hard. And then equity raises after that get a lot easier as you grow and scale. Yeah, perfect. So can you talk about some of the different ways that you can actually structure deals from a passive investor standpoint? I mean, I know you talked about a few different ways that you did early on when you started doing joint ventures. You, you did active involvement with, a, with an investor. You also did, started going into the syndication route. Can you mm -hmm. talk about different ways that you actually structure them for investors participating in a deal? It depends on the small stuff uh, we just did. We we got started doing um, doing just small equity deals. We also did some private loans. Those I, I recommend people start with private loans because those are super easy to structure. Um, on the on small equity deals, we just formed an LLC, and you got to be and you got to make sure the LLC operating agreement says that you're both active partners, and it says who's going to do what. And it could be like, hey, listen, my stockbroker guy out in New York putting in, putting in 80 hours a week. He doesn't have time to go and meet contractors at the site or go help collect rent or whatever, but he can keep the books or he can audit the financials or whatever, or kind of sit over my shoulder on things. He's I'm fine with him doing that. And he can do that. So the operating agreement just lists those things out. And that's what you would call just an active, an active investment arrangement. On the passive side, it's still an operating agreement. It's still um, subscription agreements and things like that. You get a little more complicated. You get a document called a private placement memorandum, which is when you're working with non-accredited investors and the paperwork can become, you know, 
measured in inches, you know, um, and that that people need to fill out. But it's not; it's still not that complex. And you just got to hire a good enough lawyer. Don't don't and even on the small stuff. Hire a lawyer. Don't be tempted to go online and buy, you know, from you know these websites. That, I mean, there's websites out there right now that you can go and buy a PPM for a real estate syndication for a couple hundred bucks. It's like, oh my goodness, that is so short sighted. You can. I don't think you should though. Um, it's going to so, cost uh, you. going to cost you more than a couple hundred bucks if something more goes than a sideways. To defend yourself, <laughs> yeah, man, yeah. So, so that's what I, I recommend people do: is just hire a good lawyer um, that comes well recommended, that still has affordable rates, um, that knows what they're doing, and and there's a lot of them out there that you could hire. So, um, it's it's not, the, the, but the, the legal documents themselves are not that different. It's just it just has to do with what they say. Yeah. And can you talk about some of the different accreditations for different types of investors? I mean, depending on the type of deal you're doing, there's obviously accredited, there's not accredited. Can you kind of touch on that's it? Yeah. On on those what what it kind of defines an accredited, why are they allowed to invest in particular deals and others yeah. not? Can you kind of highlight some of those topics? It's interesting, Marcus, because it's changing, right? So currently it says an accredited investor has to either earn 200000 a year if they file by themselves over the last two years. And again, the people, you got to Google these things because there's a lot more detail there, but I will paraphrase it for you. You got to earn over 200000 a year for the last two years and, and reasonably expect to earn that in the next, in, you know, for the foreseeable future. If you want to fi- if you want to qualify by yourself, if you want to qualify with your spouse, it's three hundred under the same parameters, right? Because um, maybe you got two spouses that are both earning one hundred and fifty k a year or something like that, right? So it's three hundred if you want to qualify with your spouse, or you got to have um, a net worth of over a million, not including your home, but that does include your retirement accounts, cash, stock, um, business valuations. Um, you know, you could even throw in. I believe you can throw in whole life insurance. Um, in there too, uh, you know, and, and so just any asset you have, add it all up. That's your net worth, just without your person, without your primary residence for one reason or another. That's another way to become accredited. And the SEC is starting to add more accreditation standards in there that you can. And by the way, it's one. It's it's the two hundred thousand or the three hundred thousand or the million. It's it's not and. It's not this and that and this and that. It's just one or one of those other things, right? Um, and the SEC is also adding um, that if you have one of the stock brokerage license, like a Series 7 license, and there's some other ones out there too, if you have one of those licenses, then you're automatically accredited. Um, I believe if you're on the C-suite, CEO, CFO um, of a certain size company, then you're accredited as well. You know, So there's a lot to it. You can look it up online. Um, that being accredited then allows you to invest in in certain deals. Um, you can also invest in deals that are set up for non-accredited investors, but the, the rules change, parameters change. Uh, as a syndicator, we can only sell to but so many non-accredited or what are called sophisticated investors um, in, in that. So just it, 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 um, it changes. It also governs what the syndicator, us, uh, are allowed to do to attract investors. So if you are... Uh, doing aggressive marketing and what's called soliciting, meaning like, and you, you see everybody doing this. They shouldn't be doing it, but they do it, putting on Facebook, hey, I'm buying an apartment building and you can buy apartment buildings too. And isn't that awesome and all that? That's a, that's a solicitation. Um, and you got to be careful with that because if you're not taking accredited only, then you are soliciting and you should, you should uh, certainly be careful 
about what you put out there on social media about your credit, about your, your deal and um, what kind of returns you can pay and everything like that. Um, and so folks, uh, folks need to be aware of that. You need to be wary of what you can and can't say. Um, it, it is something that people get in trouble for. Um, and that you can't promise returns. You're like, I promise I will pay a 15% return on your money. Yeah. You can say what you did in the past. You can say what your projections are. You can put lots of asterisks and exits on there too. But that's why these things matter because the SEC does regulate this. You can also raise some non-accredited, but you can't solicit. And they have to be someone you have a significant pre-existing relationship with. So your uncle Charlie, your cousins, your neighbors, your aunt Sally, somebody you went to high school with, all those people all are qualified because you have a pre-existing relationship. What the SEC doesn't say is I met Marcus at a networking event last week. Marcus and I had one phone call. We talked about how awesome each other was and we talked about real estate for five minutes. Is that a pre-existing relationship? The SEC doesn't define it. There's people that have rules out there that say like, well, I require that we have three touches or I require that you have to have known them for three and a half years or I require they had to set me a birthday present last year or something like that, right? Um, whatever it is, the SEC does not define what a significant pre-existing relationship is. And there's a reason for that. And that's so that they can, they've got that as a means that they can challenge you if they need to. Um, and that they, they want to let the courts define what that is, not in they want they don't want it to be in the code. Yeah, and, and really, what they're looking to, to do with that is just protect the investing public from knowing what they're getting involved with. From the PPM that's out there to kind of inform the investor every single risk that's involved, all the details that the deal itself, and kind of understand fully what they're getting into. But also from the aspect of they consider an accredited investor. Well, that person has built up a substantial amount of income or net worth that they must have some level of sophistication that they're going to understand how to make it investment decisions. They're kind of like, okay, SEC and, and other securities commissions will basically say, well, they know what they're doing. They're you know grown grown adults. They can make decisions on their what they're going to invest in, allowing them to have access to a broad range of of private placements and and really they're just looking to to protect those people and and from the 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 close well actually in in Canada here which where I'm based is they have a lot, the rule the friends family and business associates exemption which is basically saying well if you have if you're a friend or a family member or you've done business for years and years with this this particular entity or the, the issuer of the securities then you're going to have a good enough understanding of the merits of the investment from you know that person you have a relationship with them you have enough trust with them to know that okay. I understand what I'm getting into. I'm not, I didn't just meet this person off the street and they said I can get 50% returns. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do it because they promised me something that they actually probably can't deliver on. So, and, and that's where all those things come into saying, uh, <laughs> our lawyer always says, never say <laughs> guaranteed, never say guaranteed yeah. return anything. Always preface it with targeted or different things like that. So there's just yeah. different rules in place to protect the, protect the people um, to know what they're investing and make sure that yeah, they don't get kind of yeah, the something pulled over their eyes, and, and then because that that's that's what yeah. ultimately happens is if if something does like these people that you kind of are saying are going out and soliciting for investments, like they might not get caught right off the bat. They might not have an SEC person or looking at what they're posting online. But the biggest thing is down the road when potentially something goes wrong, and then they're like they didn't get the the, the returns that they were looking for. Then they're like, okay, this person promised me twenty percent. Mm -hmm. I only got twelve percent. I'm I'm well, angry. Then the SEC comes in, it's like, well, how'd you meet them? 
like, oh, I met him at a real estate meetup. And then three days later, he asked me to invest in a deal and he filed me and I'm not accredited, which means he had to have a pre-existing substantive relationship. Oh, okay. And you only knew him, you only knew him for three days, huh? Okay. Um, that, that That's how uh, these things tend to unfold. And it's obviously, if your deal goes south or if your deal gets squirrely, that an investor tends to turn you into the SEC or if they, decide to, if they just decide that they're just not happy in general, then it can unwind that way, which is why it's important to have your act together and and do things the right way. So that if there is an issue, and I mean, you know, none of these, sometimes these things don't go perfect, um, and it might not be your fault that they called the SEC on you. But if the SEC catches you on a technicality or something that you did wrong in the deal, you know, uh, the, the repercussions can be very stiff. Yeah. So let's talk about. Uh, we, we were talking about some of the. The, the, the weeds of the regulations, which isn't always the, the funnest thing to understand, but I mean, it's, it's an important aspect of the private placement and investing into private real estate deals. And it can become intimidating when you get that private placement okay. or offering memorandum when it's, like you said, inches, inches thick with all the, the paperwork that's required. But let's talk about on the other side, like what are some of the benefits of past investing? Like what are some of the problems that we solve offering these types of private investments to people that are going to join as passive investors. Oh man, it's, it's, uh, there are tons. Um, for me, there's the feel good part of it in knowing that my, now, cause we do C-class value add as a company, meaning like we go and buy C-class asset and we go do big investments in it to make it stable and to make it home and to make it a way better asset than it was before we bought it. Right. Um, and so, so th there's the feel good aspect that you're providing solid, secure homes, uh, for the, you know, the, the larger population of America, right? There's that. Um, but beyond that, th there is the returns. They can be, they can be lucrative, um, but they're also secured by real estate, which means that, you know, they're, they're there's something standing behind them. I mean, if you go buy shares in Microsoft and the shares go to zero because the CEO was a bad actor, you can't go take the CEO's house, you know? Um, but in real estate equity, the, the syndicator and, and the other folks that are in, in, in line with them are kind of in bed with you. And, and they're, they're liable as well. They're obligated. They're probably co-signers on the mortgage. Um, and, and they may have their own capital in. So they're a lot they're a lot more vested than a lot of the Wall Street investments that you can do. That's number two. I don't know how this works out in Canada, but in the US, uh, if you invest in a syndication and it makes like, you know, $5,000 in a year, um, you will likely not pay tax on it anywhere near five grand a year. And if the syndicator does a really good job, you may get a, a K1, which is a tax, a tax item that you send to your CPA uh, for your investment at the end of the, each year. So your K-1 may say that you lost money, even though you made 5,000, uh, the syndicator does a good job. You could, you'd get something that shows that in, in the negative as, as a profit, um, which is sick because with that, not sick, which just it's really cool. Okay. Because what that means is that you can, sorry, I'm starting to use slang, right? What that means is that, um, that you can earn money, but you can legally show the IRS that you lost it, um, that you lost money, meaning it's a tax write-off. Um, that, that you can use it to apply to other gains that you might have on your passive, uh, your other passive investments. And if you got nowhere to apply it in, in year one, it'll carry forward to other years. So again, taxes, uh, aligned interest, you know, collateralization, as I said, 
um, cash flow because it's always it's they're typically good cash flow investments too. And then finally, leverage, meaning like what we do, like I said, we'll go in and buy a really sick puppy apartment building, renovate it, turn it around, and then I've added a bunch of value to it so I can refinance it or sell it. Um, and when I refinance it, I can pull out a bunch of money tax free and give it back to my investors, you know, because it's a loan. And so with leverage, uh, I can go and say somebody puts in 100K into one of my deals. Maybe halfway through, I can refinance and give them back 50 of their 100K and they can take that, put it in their pocket, take that, invest it in another deal, whatever it is they choose to do. So for all those reasons, it, it is a phenomenal investment. Yeah, there's just so many different aspects to look at. And yeah, and you were referring to the different tax benefits as well. And and much like the, the states, the Canada here has similar types of tax treatment. I mean, there's going to be some obviously some differences as well. But if you're participating as a limited partner in the deal, you are going to also be getting well up here. You know, it's called a T5013, and you're going to get be included in those losses that are are received. So you're going to be receiving your distributions, and they're not going to be taxable because essentially the the property is showing no not showing a profit because of all those depreciation write-offs and up here it's called capital cost allowances and different things for tax purposes that allow you to be sheltered from those potential uh, tax you know taxes that you would otherwise pay on passive investments so um i know you have to probably get going here shortly and i know i want to start wrapping it up here so i'm going to take it into the final four questions and uh we just sure. get short to the point answers so what is your favorite what is your favorite real estate or business book? And you can say your own book if you want. <laughs> no, because that wouldn't wouldn't that be just you know that's just too self serving, and that's just not me, Mark, uh, Marcus. Um, I, I you know I probably would still go to the book that changed my life, which was Rich Dad Poor Dad, and you probably get that all the time on your show. Um, but I'd say Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I, I would even second it with with Robert Kiyosaki's second book, which is Cash Flow Quadrant. Um, phenomenal book as well. Yeah, those are great books and definitely heard them a lot. And and they are just, mm. you hear them over and over because they're so great. So <laughs> I was joking about uh, you recommending your own book, but I wanted to plug it for you though as well. We haven't <laughs> chatted about it too much here, but I'm sure with all the work and sweat you put into it, it's probably by, if you were to look at it, you're like, definitely not my favorite book with all the the, <laughs> the long hours I put into it. Not a fun process. It was love-hate. It was love-hate. <laughs> I, I, I loved it many times and I hated it a few days too. And I was like, man, I did not want to have to go work on this book right now. I'm grateful I wrote it. I love the book. And it was one of, it was, it's, it was like another, it was like a third child of mine. <laughs> you know? Who talked um, into it? Was it Brandon Turner? No. Uh, well, no, I, I, I know him very well. He and I talked at length about, you know, the possibility of writing books and what it was like and, uh, you know, how difficult it was. Um, but I had um, it, just bigger pockets themselves was I had done a lot of YouTube for them. And they're like, hey, man, listen, you should talk to us about writing a book. And I um, sat down with them and I, I said, well, here's some ideas. Here's some success that I've had and things I think I could talk about. And they were like, yes, we love that. And so I was like, oh, great. OK, I wrote a book. How hard could it be? It's hard. You know, um, and then I, and I just pitched, uh, I just had a pitch today for a second book with them and I, I believe they have accepted it. So amazing. You're going to jump in again. And, and that's kind of the, the thing I hear from Brandon every time, every time uh, he's got a good idea, it's like, oh, it's gotta be a book. Gotta do, do another book on it. Right. <laughs> he's a great author. I don't, I don't think it's as hard for him as it, is for, as it is for, yeah. 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 So. Okay. So what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing? That focus is key that you can't do. 
you know, raw land one day or go look at rentals the next day and then go look at flips the day after that and then try and do a wholesale. And then if you focus on, if I had focused on a specific effort of real estate, that would have been uh, a, a absolute scale to my success much faster. And we, and I am successful and we built it, but only since I've been focusing. Amazing. So what is a daily habit that helps you be successful in real estate? This is called my go call do list. And every day I sit down, first thing I do before I start working, I don't just jump in and start doing stuff. I do my thing, places I got to go, which are my phone calls and people I got to call, like, you know, or my, my go, like my appointments, my calls, people I have to touch base with on projects and then do, which are proactive items. So, um, Again, appointments, um, you know, just maintenance check-in on things, and then proactivity. And I okay. do that every day. And I, I reference that with my week goals, which were created based on my annual goals. Yeah, so important to have that task tracking and, and staying accountable to yourself and, yeah. and, and keeping yourself. Without, without that, I just would be at the wind, man. I would be very reactionary every day. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be. Uh, I, I wouldn't be as on purpose as I can be if I've got my list. You know. Yeah, totally. So what do you like to do for fun? Um, uh, I like to run, if that's fun. I like to take, I, I like to, I'm taking my son to a scouts meeting. So I like to hang out with my kids. Um, I used to make wine. I, I gotta get, I, my wife and I have moved since I used to make my own wine uh, at the place, at the house I lived before this one. But, uh, and I have not set up a winemaking shop here at my new home, but, uh, but I'm working on that. So yeah. Um, and my wife and I also, before COVID, we did a lot of traveling. So, and we're working on working on making that happen again soon. Yeah, and I know you got to, as you, you mentioned, you got to get your son off to his, his scouts meeting as yeah, well man. here. So we're yeah, wrapping up shortly. Cub so scout, man. We're, yeah, yeah. We're, uh, we're landing this plane here. So last thing, how can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about you, maybe the book, whatever you kind of want to plug right now. Everything about us is on our website. They can access my YouTube channel, my wife's podcast, The Real Estate Invest Her Show. They can buy a copy of my book. They can hear about uh, investing further with us, and they can hear about our education outlets uh, by going to derosagroup.com. That is D-E-R-O-S-A group, G-R-O-U-P.com, derosagroup.com. Amazing. I'll put that in the show notes. And it was fantastic having you on today, Matt. You added a ton of value. You've got a lot of expertise doing this for years, and I'm thankful that you had the, the, the opportunity to come on here and share with my audience. So thanks again. I, I'm thankful too. Great interview. would love to come on again soon. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay, thanks again. Take care. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.